Over the last couple of weeks, I, I, I confess I've been dawdling somewhat in the, um, in the introduction. As a pastor, and especially this would be the first time that I'm really going through the book of Revelation with a congregation, um, it's very uh, challenging and uh, it's very tempting to jump into the abyss of, uh, and I mean that in a, in a, in a positive way, because uh, the abyss is never a good thing, but it, when it's good things, uh, it, the, the temptation is there. And so it's very, uh, pray for me that I'd be able to keep it straight because there's so much here that I want to make sure we, we, don't, um, we don't spend too much time, but we don't also give it what it's worth. And, um, and you know, the Lord reminded me that if we, if we did nothing but read the book of Revelation, and I didn't say a single word. We, I said, we prayed, and then I just got into it and read it. The blessing is going to be there. Because he promised the blessing for those who read it out loud and those who hear it. And those who keep it, the blessing is there. And any time I open my mouth, other than the word of God, the Lord says, you're a potential liability. Right? Every time I open my mouth, when it's not the word of God on the written page, I become a liability to God. So I understand how serious of a matter that is. But let's pray. And let's, uh, I'm going to read to you uh, for the sake of time, because we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Father, we uh, thank you for uh, this book, Father. And we recognize, Lord, that there is so much to it. And we recognize, Lord, that it's, it's a revelation, Lord, not only of yourself, Lord. It's a revelation of your thoughts. It's a revelation of the things that you are planning and that you have planned from before the foundation of the earth, Lord. You have planned these things. And, Lord, you are showing them to your servants. You're showing them to all of us today. Lord, you spoke. You gave the revelation to your son, Jesus, and he gave it to his angel to signify it to John. And John was to give it to all of us, certainly to the churches present at that time, but also to all the church throughout all time until you return And so, Lord, we acknowledge that this morning, and we acknowledge the wonderful future that we have. And we also understand, Lord, the difficulty of those who refuse Christ. And, Lord, the things that are coming upon the earth that are so frightening, God. How could anybody resist you? How would anybody want to stay outside of the family of God at a time like this, especially as we read this? Lord, may you prick the hearts of every unbeliever and the hearts of the believers. Lord, that we would take and keep those things that are written here. So, Lord, have your way with us. And, Lord, may you be glorified. You are the only reverend. You are reverend and holy is your name. Faithful and true are you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to read to you the first eight verses. We're going to get through uh, verses four through eight today. And when I get back from Israel in a couple weeks, uh, we will begin in chapter 9, which is really the, the, the description of Jesus, and it's going to be wonderful. But let's look at chapter uh, 1, verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things, notice, that he saw. And here's the blessing. Underline this. Put a star by this verse. Blessed is he, notice three things, he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written in it, for the time is near. 
nice introduction. And then it says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Almighty. As we looked at verse 3 there, last week we really just covered the first three verses. The week prior was really just an introduction to the, to the book. But as we look at this, notice, uh, blessed is, is he who reads. The idea is reading out loud. And that's what we're doing now. We're reading it out loud, whether you're reading it to yourself, but reading it out loud has a, a, a second benefit because it, it encompasses more of the senses. As many of the senses that we can get in the word of God into us, all the better. And when I read it to myself, it's not audible, is it? But when I read, even to myself, I'm engaging more of my senses. I'm engaging my sight. I'm engaging my hearing. I'm engaging these things. But notice, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. The idea of this word here is very important. It means to attend, to consider what is or has been said, to understand, to perceive what is being said. And are we listening? Are we listening? You know, oftentimes, you know the, what happens, men and, and women, husbands and wives. You can be sitting on the couch with your husband and, or sitting across the room, and something could be distracting you. You could be thinking about something else, and your wife, your spouse is speaking to you. You know they're in the room. You're thinking about something else. Maybe you're distracted by something on television. They're talking, but you're not really there. Or maybe you're in the car and you're driving along and she says, did you hear what I said? You're like, no. No, I didn't. I didn't. What is it? You're going 80 miles an hour. Oh. No. We have to be listening. See, more than our spouse, our, 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 our Savior, Jesus Christ, wants to speak to us. And every single day he wants to Uh, give you his heart. He wants to give you something. Every single time we gather, every single time that you get into the word of God, he wants to give to you. So we have to be listening. We have to be listening. We have to be hearing. The Bible says in Romans 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That means that faith comes through hearing. When I hear, it, it, it does something inside of me. It gives me something to chew on. It gives me something to be challenged by And my faith grows as I hear what? Not just anything, but as I hear the word of God. How important is it for us to be in the word of God? As Christians, we would all say it's very important, but let me challenge you. How often do you spend in it apart from our gatherings? Is it a part of your life so much so that every single day you are in it for as much time as you can? The greatest peace you will find, brothers and sisters, is the more you spend time with the Lord and be in his word, the greater peace you will have on your life. And the alternate is true. 
the less you are apart from his word, the more you're going to sense, uh, uh, you're going you're gonna to have anxiety and you're going to have a sense of, uh, of just worry. And the cares of life will overshadow those things. So how important is it? It's very important. So we need to hear. Notice, blessed are those who read and who hear the words of this prophecy, this word prophecy, because the Bible, the, the book of Revelation, is a book of prophecy. Now, prophecy signifies the speaking forth of the mind and the counsel of God. It's not just showing things that are yet to come. Does that make sense? When we think of prophecy, we always think of something that hasn't occurred yet, but it's more than that. That, that, That's certainly one part of it. But the other part is God just showing forth and speaking forth his mind and his counsel. That is prophecy. That is prophecy. And this word And it's no uh, surprise that this word prophecy occurs seven times in the book of Revelation. Here in verse 3, in chapter 11, verse 6, in chapter 19, verses 10, chapter 22, verses 7, 10, and then 18 and 19, seven times it occurs, this word prophecy. And when we think about things to come, you know, we can think about this book. Really from chapters 4 through the end are prophetic because they have not occurred. And we're right in the middle of the church age, in between this second and third chapter of what we're reading here, because that really encompasses the church age. But there's coming a time, and we'll look more at chapter 4 when we get to it, when the Lord will say, come up here. And he says that to the church. He raptures the church. She is with him forevermore. But we'll look at that another time. But John was very understanding and very familiar with Jesus speaking prophecy. You remember that night in the Last Supper, Jesus spoke to his disciples because he told them of his impending, his coming death on the cross, but that he told them also that he would rise again the third day. And they were still very concerned. They didn't quite get it yet, and we would be the same way. But Jesus said something really interesting to his disciples that night of the Last Supper. He says, let not your heart be troubled. And I think there's a lot of us today that have hearts that are troubled. And I think the same message would be to you and to me. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Notice what he says to them. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. For that where I am, that where you, I'm sorry, that where I am, there you may be also. And where you go, I know, and the way you know. Jesus spoke prophecy, things yet to come to his servants, to his disciples. In Revelation 19, verse 10, it says, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So even, not only foretelling events, but even everything he says is the spirit of prophecy. Because Jesus said, I, am the, I and the Father are one, and if you've heard me, you've heard the Father. Have you read that? And so whatever he says is exactly the heart of God. That's in the counsels of his own heart. And he doesn't waste words. The ink that we have on the page here, these words aren't here by, by happen chance. They are there specifically and very deliberately. They're placed there. It's, it's like a, a, a surgical thing where every single word, God meant what he said, and he said what he meant, and we can believe every single word of it. Do you believe the word of God this morning? Do you believe it? 
Because sometimes my life can betray what I claim with my mouth. I can say I believe in you, Lord, but yet my life is painting a different picture. I would encourage you to take the word of God seriously. And not only take it in for knowledge, okay, because if that's where it ends, there's going to be a problem because there's a lot of people who know a lot up here, but we don't have a lot of love down here. Love, folks, is what is important. The very love of God in for him toward us, and then we are to manifest his love and his grace to others. And boy, I tell you, there is never a time in history when we need the love of God more than now. Not only for us personally, but for the love of God to be demonstrated, demonstrated and spoken to all those around us, especially those who are against us. Against those who are, uh, uh, or to those who are, who are difficult to be around. We need that. But prophecy, so important. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, it says, My word that goes forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish all that I, which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing where I sent it. The word of God, how important is it? It's very important. But going on here in verse 3, we've got to look at a couple more things here. He said, And blessed are those who keep those things. The idea is to watch and preserve, to guard it. So many saints throughout history in the church have guarded the word of God. Many have hazarded their own lives, given their lives for the word of God. They've kept it. They've prayed over it. They've cried over it. They've tore it out of the Bible. There's some pastors that, that you know, I think it was Martin Luther, actually, at one point, I think it was him, got so angry, he just tore the Bible he just tore it because of the wrestling that he was wrestling with. But, you know, before, during his conversion or before that, I don't remember exactly, but he got so angry. And, you know, I wish there were people more angry like that about struggling with their own selves rather than just thinking, I'm okay, I'm okay. But the guy was just, he was so taken by what was written there, he, it just, it, it, it grasped him. And so few of that is happening today. You know, Jesus said, I would, if you were, if you were uh, hot or cold, I can, deal, I can deal with something. I can deal with you on that. But he says, there are many that are lukewarm. He said that to the Laodicean church, and I believe that's the church we live in. And you may be offended by that, and it may not be you specifically, okay? It may not be you and I specifically. You may be okay with the Lord. And praise the Lord if that be the case. But church-wide, over the whole country... We're playing games. We're more interested in being entertained and worship music and being entertained, having the rock concert, feeling good about myself, never being challenged, but telling, oh, God loves you, and it is true, he does love you, but if that's all you hear, you're going to be walking out of here thinking that God loves you, and you can just stay the way you are. But let me tell you something. That is not the gospel. The gospel is good news because there's bad news. The bad news is that I'm going straight to hell. You are going straight to hell if you don't have Christ in your life. That message had to be preached to me when I was 24 years old. I knew I was going straight to hell. I needed the gospel, and the gospel set me free, and it set you free, amen? For those of you I know, you have, but it's serious business. 
because God loves you. He really does love you. But at his expense, at his price, because of our sin, there is no way around that. We cannot skirt that. It must be proclaimed. But the idea is to keep those things that are written in here, for the time is near. And there are some who won't even read this book. There are some pastors, some churches that will stay away from this book because they think it's too dark, it's too unknowable. Well, why? if it is, then why did Jesus say that it would be a blessing for us to read it? Seems like a contradiction. I think he's right. I know he's right. We're wrong. Right? We read it. We can't guard. We can't observe. We can't preserve that which we don't read or think is valid for today. This book is more valid than ever before as we get closer to the end. And I love this word keep because it reminds me of another word in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. You know this verse. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That word here is in the Hebrew, Shema. And Shema literally means to hear with the intent of being obedient to it. Same kind of thing. Hear with the intention of doing something about it. Don't just let it set up here. It has to get from the 18 inches from here down into here where my life and my actions are motivated. They're changed by what I hear. Up here, it's got to get here. Don't just let your head be filled with knowledge, but seek a relationship with Christ. And finally, he gets into the greeting of the, of the letter. He says, John, to the seven churches. Now, we know this is John the apostle who penned the letter, but the individual letters that we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3 were dictated to John by um, Jesus through the angel. Letters to seven specific churches in Asia Minor, which we now know today as Turkey, in that area of Turkey today, there were seven churches, and these letters were written to them, and they were Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. He lays those out for us in verse 11. And while I believe that these seven churches, these are seven literal churches, but I also believe that it represents the church age as a whole, from the very beginning, from the day of Pentecost when the church was born, all the way until the rapture of the church. Every, every commendation that Jesus gave to these seven churches, every correction that he gave to these seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century, seven literal churches, he says at the end of each letter to them, notice it says, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These letters are meant to be read to the individual church and also all the letters written are, are to be read to all, to all the churches, to all of them. Listen to them because you'll find church history kind of compacted into these letters. You find the lukewarm church. You find the church that's doing really well. You find those that are losing their first love. You find churches that are, um, you know, they, they've left their first works. You see it all in these letters, and they really represent the church age. And incidentally, this is the first time we, we come across the number seven. The number seven is a number of, of uh, signifies completion and perfection, and you're going to see it replete throughout the book of Revelation. So many times the number seven is used. The number seven. There are seven colors in the rainbow. Roy G. Biv, right? Red, orange, yellow, green, indigo, blue, violet, whatever that is. 
right? Indigo violet. Seven. There's seven. The rainbow belongs to God. Can I get an amen? Can I get a witness? The rainbow belongs to him as a promise, right? We know that's what the rainbow's all about. Redeem the rainbow. <laughs> Not only that, but there's seven notes that make up the major scale. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. Everyone together. A do, a deer, a female deer. Ray. <laughs> seven notes. They make up something complete. Seven notes in the scale, seven days in a week. So many things, so many sevens. There were seven priests who were carrying seven trumpets in Jericho. They marched around on the seventh day, seven times. There are seven churches, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bull judgments, golden lampstands, spirits, lamps of fire, eyes, thunders, people, heads, plagues, kings. You're going to see all these things, and they all speak of completion. Completion and perfection. And notice what John says to these churches. He says, grace and peace to you. I would say that the first century church needed much of that, and I think we do too. We need grace and peace. Grace, that unmerited favor which we could not earn. We could not earn it. And certainly in the first century, they were being persecuted. I remember when I was 20 years old, 1990, went to Europe with a travel study group, and we were over in Europe for a month. It was a humanities course at college where you see all of Europe in a month kind of, kind of deal. And I remember going down into the St. Priscilla catacombs underneath Rome and seeing where the Christians were being persecuted, where they, where they hid and where they buried their dead in the walls. I remember vividly as an unbeliever walking through those catacombs with the lighting very dim and very musty smelling and walking through and seeing the images that they, they wrote on the walls of Jesus and Mary, and the three, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you see all that on the walls. They've preserved those things. They were all there. They were being persecuted under Nero and Domitian, running for their lives in fear of the Romans and fear of the Jews who hated them. They needed grace, so do we. And what about peace? Do you have peace with God? Do you have peace with God when you lay down at night? Is there peace in your heart or is there fear and intrepidation? If we have the peace of God, or if we have the peace with God, we can have the peace of God. Does that make sense? If you have peace with him, if you've made peace with him, if you're one of his and you've made peace... Jesus made peace by the cross. If you're under the cross, if you're a member of the church, you can have the peace of God because you have the peace with God. The battle is no longer a battle. You've surrendered your life. Your life is dead in Christ. And the Bible says that uh, we've been raised in newness of life as he was resurrected. And so too at the rapture of the church when our mortal bodies will put off mortality and put on immortality. And he says to this, notice, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And notice the order there. I love the order here. Who is? He is. Jesus is present with us now. 
Aren't you glad that that was the first thing he said? He didn't didn't say, I'm the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. The order is important. I am the one who is present. Are you present? You are. Behold, you're sitting here. And guess what? He's present with us. Isn't that one of his names? Emmanuel, God with us. Notice, that's the first thing he says. I am who is and who was. I am who was. See, God understands our past, our guilt, our sin, and he can forgive it if we confess it. And he's also the one who is to come. He is coming again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He has gone ahead of us and he's preparing a place for us. We read it in John 14 earlier. He's going to prepare a place for you and I. Does that sound like a good deal? Does that, sound, does that excite your heart? I pray that it does. Because I don't want to be in here any longer. You know, I've seen a lot of good things. I've experienced a lot of wonderful things. I'm only 50 years old and I've experienced a lot. I've seen a lot. But there is nothing that holds a candle to being with Christ. There is nothing... Everything pales compared to what we have ahead of us. Let your heart be raptured with that thought. Let your heart be taken away. And let your worship begin there. Let it begin there. Lord, I want you more than ever. Come and just take me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to desire that. He is... He is the one who is and who was and is to come. In Revelation, the same chapter in verse 18, I love it again. He uses the same kind of thing. He says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. The pattern is there again. I'm the one who lives with you now. I wasn't one who died and then you're on your own until I return. That would be a pretty horrible thing. But no, he says first. I am the one who lives. I'm the one who is. Yes, I'm the one who died. But I am the one who is. I'm the one who is alive, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. If you see in this, uh, these verses, verses 4 and 5, for those of you who want to see the Trinity, here it is in verses 4 and 5. He says, to him who was and who, 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 who is and who was and who is to come, and the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ. Do you see three personages there? Him who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come, that's God the Father. It can be God the Son, but in this context, it's God the Father. And from the seven spirits, it's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And finally, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. Underline those words because there's your trinity right there. God three in one. God in three persons. Blessed trinity. Amen? We see the trinity present. We see it in the creation. Elohim. We see the Trinity present during Jesus' baptism. Remember, as Jesus in the Jordan, the Spirit descended like a dove, and God the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Trinity. There it is. And the seven spirits. The seven spirits in Revelation 3 1 here, speak, or in, in Revelation 3 uh, verse 1, you can read that, but it, it's something that Jesus possesses. The seven spirits. He holds, he says, these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God. Jesus possesses that. 
In Revelation 4, verse 5, it also says, The seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In Revelation 5, verse 6, it says, These are the, um, the, 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 the lamb having seven eyes, or seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. It seems like it's talking about his power and his omniscience and his omnipresence, which the spirit of God is. Amen? The seven spirits of God, notice in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, there's been no one as faithful as Jesus. One of his names is faithful and true. Has there been anybody more faithful to you than Jesus? He may not have given you everything you want when you wanted it, but I can tell you this, he's always given me what I needed, and he gave me, (coughs) excuse me, much more than I could possibly ever imagine. He's given me what, I, what, what he knows I needed. What I think I needed is immaterial. But he gave me what he knew that I needed. But he is the faithful witness. The, wit, the word witness there is martis. That's where we get our word martyr. And he was faithful in that. Uh, this martis, this is somebody who gives their life for something that they totally believe in. They'll, they'll undergo a violent death in order to achieve it. And Jesus was and is that greatest example He was fully God and fully man, and he paid the price for you and I. We know this. This is the gospel. And he's our high priest. He is our high priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4. He's also our high priest. And he died the most horrible death on the cross. The most horrible death. While Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Was it any surprise to Jesus? No, it wasn't. But let me suggest to you something. You know, the Bible talks about his sufferings, his physical sufferings, and they are significant. But there are folks, there have been... There have been thousands of people who have been crucified in history. Horrible way to go. There's no doubt about it. One of the worst forms of punishment, of torture, is the cross. The Romans mastered it. They were excellent at it. But Isaiah said that he was rejected. He was forsaken. That's literally what it means. And when Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? He was hearkening back, really, to Romans 50, or, excuse me, Isaiah 53. I've been rejected by men, a man of sorrows. He was despised, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God. And by his stripes we are healed. And let me tell you something. It wasn't just the physical stripes. As horrible as the physical beating was, the thing that really did the job was what nobody could see. The Bible says in Isaiah, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. The offering for sin is something that the world could not see with their eyes as he hung on the cross. The beatings were horrible. And certainly in that, our redemption was paid. But the thing that nobody could see was even greater because he made his soul an atonement for every single human being that could ever live on the cross. He paid the price. That's something that Mel Gibson's film could never portray. Is, is what happened behind the scenes that nobody could see. Can you imagine the hordes of hell dancing around? The devil himself, probably as Jesus was about to ready to take his last breath, and the devil going right up to his face, and nobody could see it. I mean, this is just conjecture, but I know he was reveling in it. 
He was reveling in it. He was having a riotous party. Finally, even if you come back, I at least got this satisfaction. Can you imagine looking at him right in the eye, Jesus, and saying, I got you. And Jesus said, we'll see about that. Hmm. But Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That's another phrase. In Colossians 1, Paul tells us this. He says, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He's the firstborn of the dead. There have been many people who have died, and even in the Bible, there have been some who have died and been resurrected. But let me ask you something. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, was he raised in his natural body, or was he raised in an incorruptible body? He was raised in his natural body. He died again later on. There's only one who was raised from the grave and received his resurrection body, a body that's unlike any other body on this earth that's ever been raised, It's a body that could appear, evidently, and disappear. A body that could pass through physical barriers, walls. We see that in the upper room on the day after, or the day of. And he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is. Psalm 2, you know this. God speaking, I believe this is a trialogue between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but in verse 6 of Psalm 2, God the Father says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And if you're going to Israel with us, you're going to stand on Zion. You're going to be there. We're going to be there in about a week. You're going to see it. You're going to see it. Yet I have set my king, God the Father says, on my holy hill. And the Son speaks in verse 7. I will declare the the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. He's the king of the nations. He's the king over all things. As the verse tells us, he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. Christmas cards that we get in Isaiah. You guys know this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And what? And the government will be upon his shoulder. His strength will be carrying. He will be the strong one. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. And what is he going to do? He's going to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and forevermore. I love that. Do you love that? Are you looking forward to that day? (laughs) So many things I could say. Jesus, don't you love him? Don't you love him? And when he returns, when we see the summation, the consummation of all things, We'll be coming back with him in the second coming. And what is, it, what is he going to have on his robe and on his thigh? There's going to be a name written. And what is it? What is it? On his robe and on his thigh, it's going to be written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the ruler over the kings of the earth. Satan right now is called the ruler of this world, but he only has it for a short time. It's on lease. But his lease is soon running out. And he doesn't have money to pay. 
And Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on this earth. And that's what makes this book so exciting. Because as we get toward the end, there ought to be a fevered pitch in the church. As we get closer and closer to that Revelation 19, verse 11, there's going to be this wonderful crescendo, and we're just going to feel like having a party at the end of it. And notice this. It's almost like John was so overwhelmed by these titles. Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. And then he has to stop in this wonderful, wonderful doxology and say to him, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Have you been washed in the blood of Christ? Have you been made white as snow by the blood of Christ? It's a paradox, isn't it? But the blood of Christ is the only cleanser, the only thing that God accepts. There's no other way you can clean yourself up. If you're here today and you've, your life has been flush with good works, maybe you've done a lot of really good things, maybe you've been... A, attendant to every church service and you've never missed one but if your heart is not single toward Christ if you're not born again he will say I never knew you it's more than just church attendance it's more than just reading the Bible does he own you do you have a relationship with him because he loves you he wants to have that relationship he loves you he loves you he loves you And he's also finally we get to the, the verse that I wanted to get to all morning. Verse seven. It says, Behold, he is coming with clouds. <coughs> Excuse me. I want you to underline that. He is coming with clouds, and I want you to underline what's after it, because that's very important. And every eye, every eye, circle that word, underline it, put an asterisk by it. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And even so, amen. And this is really the topic of our study to this morning, our message. Behold, he is coming with clouds. You know, the coming of Christ can be summed up in two different phases. When we think of the coming of Christ, most people think of either the rapture or they think of the physical second coming. Did you know that there is a difference? And there are two phases to the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord is like an umbrella, and underneath that you have what happens first, and that is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is, is an event where the believers are taken up to meet him in the clouds, Jesus doesn't come to the earth. We meet him in the clouds. You can read about this, and you know this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. You can also read it in 1 Corinthians 15, because it's something that happens like this. In a twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ are raised. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together, will be transformed, given a new body, the body like Jesus had on his resurrection morning. So there is the rapture, but there's also another event, the second coming of Christ. In fact, when we get to chapter 4, we will speak more concerning the rapture, but this verse is specifically speaking of the second coming of Christ. And this statement that he's making here is perhaps the greatest in all of the Bible, and cer certainly in the book, because it's a consummation of 
not only the Bible, but this book, the return of Christ to set up his kingdom for a thousand years. And his coming is mentioned again, it's kind of interesting, seven times. The second coming physically to the earth is mentioned here. And in the other areas in the scripture and revelation, it speaks really of the rapture, we believe. But there is a difference between the rapture and the second coming. And this morning, we're not going to look at all of those different differences because there's over, well over 15 different differences between the rapture and the second coming. I hope you know this because if you don't, it's going to mess up your eschatology. It's going to mess up your understanding of last things, especially as you read the Bible. We'll spend more time on this later, but let me just whet your appetite briefly because the rapture is invisible to the world. It happens in a twinkling of an eye. In 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about that. It happens just like that. Nobody sees it. The world certainly doesn't see it. But yet this verse that we're looking at, verse 7, says every eye will see it. So it can't be the rapture. And the rapture is going to be imminent. There's going to be no warning. It's going to happen at any moment. I pray that it happens before. Wouldn't that be great? The Lord would just interrupt my sentence and take us. It's imminent. It's imminent. And also, it's one, it's an event where the church meets the Lord in the air. We meet him in the air. He doesn't come down. And so we meet him in the air. But the second coming is completely different. The second coming, everyone in the world, when he comes at the end of the tribulation period, every eye will see him. And they will be, for those who are saved that are on the earth, that get saved during the tribulation, they're going to rejoice. But there are going to be others, unfortunately. Even still in their rebellion, they're going to shake their fist at him And believe me, he made all things. He can appear from all angles on all the world all at once. They can see him coming. They're going to see him coming with power on the clouds. Everyone will see it, and the general time frame will be known when he comes. They don't know the day or the hour, even in the tribulation period. But thank God, hopefully there will be Bibles around in those times. I'm sure there will be. And they'll be able to look and see what's coming next. Can you imagine that? You're an unbeliever and some, uh, a believer comes to you and says, hey, I just got saved a couple days ago, but I found this Bible and look what's happening next. But then look what happens soon. It says he's coming back at the end of all this mess and we can see the order of things. He's coming back. They're going to know in generalities when he's going to come. They won't know the day or the hour, but they're going to know it's coming soon because we know there's a terminus to this. And also when Jesus comes back in his second coming, he's coming physically to the earth. We're not going to meet him in the air. He's going to set down. In fact, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. We've got a few verses to go through here and then we're going to end. Because this is really important. And notice, this is actually the very first part of the letter. Everything we've read up to chapter, or verse 7, excuse me, has been introduction And the first thing it's really spoken of is, behold, he is coming with clouds. I should hope so. And we're going to see it. But turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Look at verse 50. And I want you to write these down because this will be helpful for you to understand the second coming, the second physical coming of Jesus to the earth. Because he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Luke 24, verse 50, what does it say after the resurrection? 
after the resurrection. It says, and he, Jesus, he led them out as far as Bethany. Now, Bethany, when those of you who are going to Israel with us, we're going to be on the Mount of Olives. And Bethany is just not too far away from the Mount of Olives, just a little bit to the east. Notice what it says. And so they're on the Mount of Olives. They're going toward, he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 1, because Luke, again, gives us a little more information about what happened here. And this is really important. Again, if your understanding of these end times is going to be, is going to be right, you have to understand this. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Because remember, Luke wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. And, he, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he really just picks up where he left off, but he gives us a little more information. Notice what he says. Now when he had spoken these things, Jesus, while they watched, he was taken up, notice, and a cloud received him out of their sight. A cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, and can you imagine that? This is before Star Trek. This is before Star Wars. You know, there's no beam me up, Scotty. You know, beam me up, Peter. Beam me up. I don't know. There's no beaming up. But God, right before them, he ascended into heaven and a cloud received him out of their sight. Verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly, steadfastly toward heaven with their mouth wide open and their eyes popping out of their heads, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner. As you saw him go into heaven, you will see him in like manner. Then they returned to Jerusalem. And, and they were on the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. So they are on the Mount of Olives. He ascends. He's going to come in the same manner. Where did he go? He was on the earth. He ascended into heaven. The angels said to them, when he comes back, he's coming back in like manner. He's going to come in a cloud, and he's going to set foot again. And guess what? On the same exact place. Turn with me to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. He's going to set down in the same place. And I can't wait to get over there. Because we're going to be standing on the Mount of Olives and we're going to see, we're going to be looking at this mountain and we're going to be thinking, good grief, this thing is going to be parted from the north to the south. We're going to read it. Because Zechariah, hundreds of years before, prophesied of the second coming of Jesus to the earth. The second coming to the earth. <coughs> Excuse me. Read with me in Zechariah 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. Notice verse 2. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, and the, rif the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord, verse 3, will go forth and fight against those nations, as he fights in the day of battle, this is the battle of Armageddon. But notice what happens. And in that day, when Jesus comes back, he's going to return just as he left. He's going to come back to the Mount of Olives. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and it does. We're going to see it. And the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west, making it a very large valley. 
Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Ezekiel talks about this too. That mountain's going to cleave in two. And there's going to be a great river coming out from the, from the, the threshold of the temple. And the water's going to go down and make the Dead Sea pure again. The Mediterranean is going to be filled with fresh water eventually. The Dead Sea will no longer be dead. There'll be fishers on the shores fishing because of the fresh water that will come as a result of that seismic event when Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives. It's going to be huge. The Antichrist temple that he's going to build, he's going to build is going to be decimated. And how do I know that? Because if a mountain right next to it is split in two from the east and the west and the north and the south, believe me, everything in the area is going down. And the water's going to flow. And he's going to set up his kingdom. That's what it says. Turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. You're all very familiar with this passage. It speaks about the great tribulation period and what happens afterward, and we're specifically going to look at verse 29. And we don't have to guess about the time period, because he says, Matthew 24, verse 29, it says what? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, we're talking about the great tribulation. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. (coughs) Excuse me. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Notice verse 30. Then the son of The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And notice, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They're going to see it. The whole earth is going to see it. They're going to see it. Even in the book of Daniel, look at Daniel chapter 7. Turn there, verse 13. And then we're going to look at one more passage. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel the prophet, writing some 600 years before Christ, All these prophets prophesying the exact same thing. Notice what Daniel said in chapter 7, verse 13. He says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Who is he speaking of? Jesus. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father. And they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Notice that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom and dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. It shall not be destroyed. This is Jesus Christ and his second coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. All governments will be made null and void. There will be only one on the ballot box. We don't have to worry about Russia intervening. There won't even be a vote. It's going to happen. I love that about the Lord. He doesn't say, you know, I'm feeling kind of insecure about this whole thing. You know, I I, I just want to put out some 
information. Let's just see if they'll, if they'll want me to come. Are they going to want me to come back? Let's send out a Twitter thing and see if they, yes or no, do you want Lord, Lord to come back? Mm, yeah, no, no, no. No, he's going to be coming back and there's going to be no one that can stop him. He came first as the meek and mild baby lamb of Jesus. Meek and mild to save everyone from their sins. But when he comes back the second time, when he comes back this time, he's going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. To exact vengeance, there will be death. There will be great vengeance upon a world that has rejected him. And do you think that he enjoys that? The Bible says that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. But let me tell you something, as great as his love is, great is his hatred toward those who hate him. You do not want to be on the, on the wrathful side of God. Are you on the, on the good side of God? I think most of us are, hopefully all of us. That's a good thing. It's a choice we have to make. Choose life or death. Didn't he say that to Moses? And to tell the children of Israel, this day choose life or death. I think I'll choose death. Are you serious? What's wrong with you? What is wrong with people? Choose life. Choose the one who created all things. The one who loves you. The one who paid the price for you. I mean, what more could he give? He gave everything. Is there any good thing that he would withhold from you? Any good thing? No, there is no good thing that he will not withhold from you. If it's good, he's going to give it to you. If it's good. If he knows it's going to be bad, thank you for withholding it from me, because I'd probably make an idol of it. I'd probably serve it and polish it. Turn with me now, finally, to Revelation 19, because in verse 7 here, he says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. And we're going to see the summation of that coming. This is what the book is all about. It's about him. And it's about what is coming. And everyone is waiting for this day. When this event happens... I'm looking forward to the rapture. That could happen at any time, but I'm looking forward. We're going to find out where we play in all of this. Notice verse 11, chapter 19. Revelation 19, verse 11. It says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Yes, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Notice, his eyes were like a flame of fire. When we get into the next several verses from 9 to the end of the first chapter, we're going to see the same Jesus described as the same Jesus that's described here. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, the Logos of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in white linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. I want spurs. I want two forty-four magnums in a holster. On each side, just because. Not that we need them, but just to look cool. Guys, you, Dan, you understand. None of that will be needed, but notice, the armies in heaven, that includes you and I, folks. We've been clothed with the, the white linen of Jesus Christ, which is the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ. We will be clothed in that. We will follow him in white linen, white and clean, following him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations 
and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's going to vanquish his enemies, and we will be coming back with him at the second coming. Does that encourage your heart? It encourages mine. Now quickly, let's look at verse 8, and then we'll be finished here. Notice Jesus, in verse 8, back in, our, in the first chapter here, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We know that the Alpha and the Omega are the first and the last of the Greek alphabet. It's like our A to Z in our alphabet, meaning that he is the beginning. Whenever the beginning was, he was there. He's also in the ending. He can see the end from the beginning because he's outside of time. Thus says the high and lofty one and who inhabits eternity. Isn't that what Isaiah 57 says? He inhabits eternity. He's outside of time. He can look at it as if it's already completed. He can see the end. He's seen everything in between as well. My life, your life. He, he could tell us what's happening tomorrow. I'm glad he doesn't. But he could if he wanted to. He's already seen it. And he loves you. He's not angry with you. If you're in Christ, you've got nothing to worry about. Even your mistakes in the future are covered under the blood. We just have to confess them. But we're covered. But because of that, because of that grace, do I, do I just continue in sin that grace may abound? No. It ought to wreck me and ruin me so much so that I'd be like, Lord, I am completely undone. I'm yours forever. Whatever you want me to do, God, I want to do that. And I want to do it right That's what it ought to do. That kind of grace, that kind of love, that's the effect of it. It should happen. Because if it doesn't, I don't understand. I don't fully get it. And you know what? If you're in that place, God will reveal that to you. But he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the ending. He's with us from the moment of our beginning to the moment of our ending and even beyond. Does that comfort you? He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. And next time we get together again, it'll be two weeks, actually three weeks, I guess, from this date. We'll get into chapter 9 through the end of the chapter. But be encouraged. Be encouraged and don't be fearful. A lot of people fearing If God spoke all things into existence, think about this logically, okay? If we can do this for a moment. Are any of you scared? You don't have to raise your hand, but there's a lot of things going on. Are you scared inside? I mean, I mean, we do live on the earth. I mean, there are some fears, I guess. I mean, we know the end game. Praise the Lord for that. We know what's coming. We know the end. God has shown it to us. That's a great comfort to me. But between now and then... Sometimes we get a little upset. We get a little worried about things. But let me encourage you with this thought. That if he who spoke all things with just a word, he said, let there be light, and there was light, and he saw it was good. He said, let there be, let there be living creatures of all different kinds and varieties the genius of God, all working together, all living in harmony, and the whole thing just working so well. 
he spoke all things when as yet there were no thing. Is he able? Is he able to conquer your fear today? Is he able to sustain you in the midst of a, of a time period that we're living in now that seems uncertain and difficult even? I would encourage you today to go home and to get on your knees. You don't have, God can answer, he, you can talk to him when you're driving your car, just don't close your eyes. He can, you can talk to him anywhere, but I would encourage you as your king, if you're able, just humble yourself, get on your knees and say, Lord, I want to be yours again. want to be yours completely unreservedly yours forever stamp me mold me shape me use me that's a good deal wouldn't you agree let's stand Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is so encouraging, Lord, for us to read these things and to know that, Lord, you have a handle on history, Lord. It's history because it's your story. It's your story. It's the very story of Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, signified it by his angel to his servant, John, and we are your servants. We're receiving, we are receiving this message, Lord, help us to trust you. So, Father, have your way with us today and keep us safe, Lord. Pour out your spirit upon every single one of us and heal our bodies, Father. Heal our minds. Heal our emotions. Heal every single part of us, God. With a word, you can speak it. It'll be done. According to your will, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.